and uh, welcome to a class back in the bunker again. Uh, we enjoyed a lot uh, doing our class last week uh, where we were off in uh, Yellowstone and Island Park and being able to, to film in those locations was actually a lot of fun. Uh, sometimes you don't see all the stuff behind the scenes uh, where I was trying to uh, finish the class uh, in Island Park and, and Cindy is running interference for the people wanting to hike the trail behind us and she's getting the big shh sign as they're trying to uh, uh, kind of walk through and figure out what it is that uh, we're doing. But uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, the other thing is that we were going to try and get some buffalo uh, in the uh, pictures behind us as we talked about creation, but uh, buffaloes really weren't uh, cooperating that much. They're, they're kind of a cranky bunch, uh, so we decided to leave uh, the buffaloes out of it. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, for those of you who hopped on and uh, were with us, uh, we, we appreciate you being there, and uh, it, was, it was actually a lot of fun to be able to, to get out into nature. Um, now, um, as we get started today, um, I wanted to, uh, maybe it's one of those executive decisions where I wanted to, we talked about what the name of this class might be, and I kind of think I've decided to change uh, the, the name of the class a little bit slightly while we take a look at what we're studying uh, through this uh, fall here. Uh, as we continue to uh, go on, um, and, and so let me let me set it up this way: um, if we go back um, to um, another September, many years ago, September uh, eighteen twenty-three, you remember that Joseph Smith is in this quandary. He's had uh, this first vision experience. He's still trying, I think, as a 14, 15, 16-year-old boy trying to understand exactly what it is that that means. Uh, he's, been, he's been on some work details where he's kind of in charge of a work detail. Boys aren't doing everything they're supposed to do, and he's pretty fit, fast with his fist. Uh, and he can make them do what he wants them to do. And his father's had him out, out doing some money digging and things like that. So I think three years after the first vision, Joseph keeps looking at himself and going, am I still kind of the guy that God the Father and Jesus Christ came and visited and had a specific mission for me to do? Am I really still that guy? And so he's going to try and get some answers. You, and you recall he... Uh, he goes upstairs in that small little cabin there in the Smith home, and that's after the other boys are asleep, Hiram and others. He prays. Here comes Moroni, uh, who has a work for him to do. He tells him that his sins are still forgiven. Tells him about plates that are hidden in a hill about a mile and a half down the road and, and what, what, the, what he's going to be doing with those. Then he does a very interesting thing. Moroni starts quoting scripture that would pertain to the restoration of the gospel and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the responsibilities that Joseph Smith would have going forward. He's going to quote scriptures. What scriptures does he quote? Old Testament scriptures. In the initial account that we have in the 1842 history 
even though Joseph says he quoted many scriptures, he quotes four scriptures specifically, three of which are from the Old Testament. And right from the beginning, you begin to see where prophets like Moroni and others saw the coming of Christ and the restoration of the gospel through the last days. And they saw them in Old Testament scriptures. So we talked initially uh, a couple of weeks ago about calling this class uh, the Old Testament through restoration eyes. Uh, I want to change that, that focus just a little bit uh, if we go back here. I want to call it Jesus through Old Testament eyes. In other words, I want to spend this fall finding Jesus in through Old Testament prophets as we start to walk our way through the additional light and knowledge we have from the Restoration. Because in Restoration, prophets saw Jesus in the Old Testament. They saw Messiah. They saw the Christus. Uh, and and what he would be doing and what his mission would be. Um, and and so I, I, I want to change the slant just a little bit so that we begin uh, to do that. Now, I know every four years we have that stretch where we're going to say, this year, we're going to study the Old Testament. You know, and I've stood there in front of classes going, our scripture of study for this year is the Old Testament. And what I get back is, oh no, we got to endure the next year so we can get back to the Book of Mormon and the New Testament. And we like those better because the Old Testament drives us a little crazy. Um, and, and so we tend to really kind of try and survive the Old Testament when was the last time that you were having a really bad day in your family and you said, wow, I really need spiritual nourishment. I think on a cold winter's day, I shall snuggle up with the book of Leviticus and find spiritual strength. <laughs> or, wow, I just can't believe how, much, how strengthening Deuteronomy is for me. Uh, and I feel so much better now in my daily life as I was learning about how they sacrificed animals uh, in the Temple of Solomon. That was really wonderful. The Old Testament gives us the willies. <laughs> the, old, the Old Testament is hard to pry into. Um, uh, and for a variety of reasons, obviously, so let me just kind of state some of the obvious ones. Um, hey, the Old Testament God is kind of scary. We like that Jesus of the New Testament. How can the Jesus of the New Testament be that same Jehovah of the Old Testament? Yeah, that guy was ordering the slaughter of cities and whole kinds of people just because they were being disobedient. And uh, we don't like him much. He seems pretty harsh. Um, and it just seems so far removed from the Jesus standing on the Mount of Beatitudes saying, love one another. That doesn't seem like the same guy. Um, now, 
We're going to talk about in a second why I think that that is and why I firmly believe that the Jesus of the New Testament can be found in the Jehovah of the Old Testament uh, and it ain't his fault <laughs> that it, it comes across that way. Okay, So sometimes we look at that Old Testament God and we don't like much what, what we're seeing there. Uh, Wow, the Old Testament is boring. Again, slog your way through Leviticus. Make sure that you know how many times what it requires to do a wave offering at the temple. Uh, what, it, what it takes exactly how you're going to celebrate the Feast of Weeks and what has to be involved there. And all of the little minutiae of the Law of Moses. That ain't very inspiring. Um, and so again it's kind of things that we hop over and if you survived uh, the, the first five books of Moses Isaiah is work, lurking in the wings <laughs> then you get to walk through 66 chapters of fun with Isaiah and you go well I just want to be able to get blow through Malachi and get to Matthew and that life will get a whole lot better again so I understand the Old Testament is pretty boring um, now, out, so because of that, outside of a few stories, we treat the Old Testament as flyover country. Uh, sometimes those in like New York and California talk about the rest of the United States being flyover country. We love New York and we're going to fly over Kansas and Nebraska and Iowa on our way to California and L.A., and we just kind of bypass all of this and, and uh, look at all that corn below us on our plane and on our way as flyover country. Well, we kind of treat the Old Testament as flyover country for the most part. Do we? When we're going to study the Old Testament, what do we like? Um, well, the Garden of Eden is fun. And we're going to do the Garden of Eden next week. The Garden of Eden. A um, little bit of cane, not too much. Samson and the cutting of hair, that's kind of interesting. Ah, Abraham, Abraham and his sacrifices with Isaac. Yes, that, that, that's really a good one. Um, Daniel and the lion's den. Yes, we like Daniel and the Oh, wait a minute, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those guys, those are some good stories. Uh, there are some uh, King David and Bathsheba, I don't know about that one, and maybe there's a lesson in there. Um, so we... we pick and pluck like a buffet a few things out of the Old Testament and the rest of it we really don't want to do a whole lot with. Um, and so we really do treat the Old Testament as flyover country. How fast can we get through this? On their way to Book of Mormon and we're back to Nephi and we're back inside our comfort zone. Uh, so now sometimes, and, and this is kind of our if you will, a lot of faith traditions will treat the Old Testament as this, and that is the Old Testament was the Old Covenant. And the New Testament is the New Covenant, and that's what we're about. We're not about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Don't like that stuff. Uh, and so really when you're talking to a lot of other Christians and other faith traditions, they'll kind of say, well... Moses and Abraham and those guys don't have a lot to do with me. Uh, in fact, as we've talked about uh, this spring, there was a tendency towards what we call supersessionism, which is the Jews had their chance in the Old Testament. They messed it up. 
they killed the Christ. And so because of that, the new Christian churches and Christians today are really the, the, uh, the new Jews, the new covenant people. And so the Old Testament is really a story of failure, of people that failed to do what they were supposed to do. And so Christianity in all of its glory now is the new covenant people. And, and that idea of supersessionism, that we had succeeded where the Jews had failed, led to a lot of uh, racial bigotry, anti-Semitism, and really was behind some of the things that Hitler and the Nazis did in terms of trying to eliminate these failed people. And as we've been trying really hard this last spring, and so, last spring especially, is to be able to say, Paul said no. Christians and Gentiles were to be joined into the Jewish-Israelite covenant and be part of everything promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Latter-day Saints understood both, and we have and we need to make sure that we don't get caught in this idea that it's an old covenant has nothing to do with us and and that the the temple as reconstituted by Joseph Smith shouts how important Old Testament promises and covenants are to us. Just really, really critical. Uh, finally, part of what makes the Old Testament challenging is the things that historians are fond to say that history is a foreign country. It's history. They are people like us. But when was the last time that you made a promise or a covenant to somebody else, let's say between two men, and you made that covenant by reaching around and grabbing the inner thigh of the, the, uh, the man you're making the covenant with, and that will be a sign between us that we have made this covenant. We don't do a lot of thigh touching unless we really want to go to jail <laughs> these days. But part of that custom and culture of the times were things like that, or like the, the separating of a calf into two separate parts and walking in between them as a sign of a, of a covenant. History really is and can be a foreign country if we don't completely understand what it is that was going on and how those covenants have been translated into what we now have. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons why it is the Old Testament is kind of a foreign, hard concept uh, for us to take a look at. Now, because of that, um, I want you to picture for a minute um, a, a, group of, a group of guys that are kind of marching along a road. And as they come to a sign in the road, and the sign says, there's a scenic view ahead. And they look at this scenic view and they go, Wow, look at that sign. And let's study the sign. And look at the font of the sign and the size of the sign and the way that it was put in the ground. And they spend endless amounts of time examining, studying, trying to understand this sign and this signpost. And why here? Why was it placed here? And uh, what possibly could it mean? 
Can you imagine if these guys spend years and years studying the sign and they never go look at the scenic view the sign was pointing at because they're so enamored with the sign. We can treat the Old Testament that way. And we can get caught up in the literalism and the signs that are in there without, and, we, and then we aren't looking beyond the mark. I remember uh, one of those friends experience as a uh, very now smart, educated, scriptural savvy uh, missionary on my mission. And on a particular meeting with a group of other elders, we were stretching our now uh, insightful muscles and we were trying to figure out that when Eve ate the apple, that somehow there was some kind of substance in the apple that uh, was going to create blood inside of her. And somehow in that, the same thing would happen to Adam. And because of that, now blood, so the, the, the fruit itself must have been some kind of blood producing, creating thing. And we were just enamored with the apple. And spent so much time studying the apple that we didn't go on and see the scenic view, which is the, what the fall meant and what was important to them. And realizing that at some point, I, I, th there's a real possibility we don't know. And we're gonna, again, we'll talk about it more next week. There might not have been an apple. <laughs> there, there, there was, in some symbolic sort of way, Adam and Eve partook of something or did something that created a fall that brought mortality. Now, again, there probably was something to physically partake simply because like we've learned with the sacrament that there's power in having uh, powerful symbols that suggest things to our minds. Um, and, but we're not going to know. But we can get caught up on the literalness was the flood regional or was the flood all over the world? Was that a baptism of the world? Was it simply a regional event? Was it symbolic? Did it happen at all? You know, and we get caught up in all of those kind of things and we miss the beauty and the power of the scenic view. And, and to be quite honest, some of the reason why we get caught up in this is that some of the, uh, our early uh, apostles and members of the church, especially Orson and Parley Pratt, men of the 19th century were pretty literal guys. <laughs> These were the, the guys that saying, well, if, if a man and woman are going to go into exaltation and have eternal increase, if it takes nine months to birth a baby here, it's probably going to take nine months to birth a baby there. You know, they're pretty literal uh, without seeing the symbolism behind all of that. And, and so what we're looking at sometimes in the Old Testament is we're not always going to know the symbol from the symbolized. We're just not. It's too old. It's too ancient. It's been touched by too many hands with too many agendas to always know for sure. But what we can know for sure is we can find Christ in the Old Testament. 
And sometimes Christ is hidden in the New Testament so that those that would later edit would not edit it out. Things are hidden in Isaiah so they wouldn't be removed later. So this is one of the reasons why we're going to find Christ through restoration eyes, through the eyes of of uh, those that knew what they were looking at and can help open for us uh, what it is that we're trying to see. And that's why we get people like the Apostle Paul. Uh, here's the Apostle Paul, and and picture picture you or any of us like like the Apostle Paul. We're going to go out and preach the gospel to a bunch of pagans, a bunch of Romans. The only scriptures that are available to us are the Old Testament. <laughs> Paul's writings, like First Thessalonians, we think is the very earliest Christian writings available. There's still another decade before there'll be a Mark or a Matthew or something. When he talks about the scriptures, he's talking about what he has available to him, and that is the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. That's why he's going to say to 1 Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel which we have proclaimed to you, which you have received, and you stand by means of being saved. So you read the scriptures, and it helped you be convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And he said, at first, I gave to you what you received. What did he give them? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. <laughs> and then he says, and was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And there again, there ain't no Matthew yet, and there ain't no Luke. There's no John. Paul says, I have opened the scriptures to you and you have seen that Christ would be crucified and rise again. And brothers and sisters, that's all Old Testament stuff that he's drawing on. Paul was a Pharisee. He knows his scriptures. He can probably quote long sections of Isaiah. And he's going to tell you all of the story and the promises of a coming Christ are contained in the Old Testament. So I think it's kind of important that you and I maybe find him, right? That he, we, find, we find the Christ that Paul found in the scriptures. Because this was the scriptures that he was using. Now, so, here's what makes the challenge. Uh, and I, again, I don't want to make this you know, kind of a too scholarly kind of thing, but I need you to see where some of our, our challenges here are. First question would be, who wrote the Hebrew Bible? Um, and, and exactly where did it, it come from? Well, that's, that's not an easy question uh, to answer. Um, we know that, for instance, when we talk about the Hebrew Bible, that wasn't available when Lehi and his family are getting ready to leave Jerusalem and they're going to go ahead and grab uh, the, the uh, brass plates. Okay? 
Now, the, the real answer is, again, without getting into too much of a scholarly mode, we don't know exactly who or when the Old Testament was written. We have some clues as to when the, those might have occurred. Um, as we'll talk about this uh, in a second. Um, in fact, let's, let's go ahead and do this. So, so here, is, here is what kind of our best understanding scholarly-wise now uh, if, you, if you look to a variety of sources, here's what you kind of find. First of all, we, we kind of believe that, that the, most of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as we have it, was probably written and organized actually during the exile in Babylon after Lehi had left. We know that they had scrolls. We certainly know that Lehi was able to get brass plates that contained parts of that. But by and large, most of the Bible was being compiled during the exile in Babylon. Why would they do that? Well, because it, one, it hadn't happened yet. Two, um, Jerusalem had just been destroyed. Uh, the temple was gone. Israel was scattered. And, this, and the, the assembling of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was the best attempt by, by loving, well-meaning scribes to preserve what had been lost with the people that had been scattered. So they were going to try and put together the stories of Israel. And they probably had scrolls and things that had been kind of uh, scattered all over the place and they began the process of organizing and actually writing. That's why I say we think, Gen for instance, Genesis was actually written in Babylon after Lehi left from, from available scrolls that they were putting together. Um, we know that the Septuagint for sure was written somewhere between 300 and 100 BC in Alexandria. Septuagint meaning 70, 70 scholars coming together to try and create, taking what had been coming out of here and actually then formalize it and, and put that uh, together. Now, the effect of that is that there were going to be a lot of stories that were left out, Sometimes because either they didn't have them, maybe they went with the brass plates to Le with Lehi, but in some cases it didn't match what, what Jews in exile were trying to do um, in the sea of paganism that they lived in. Uh, so, let me, so, so for instance, again, not wanting to be too scholarly on this, we now believe and we now know from, from so many sources now available to us that the Jews, the Israelites during the time uh, uh, before Lehi left were actually, uh, they worshipped uh, several gods, they, both Jehovah and, and, and his consort uh, Asherah. And, and we have shrines to Asherah that archaeologists are finding a lot of that were there. But the Jews that wrote the Septuagint 
wanted to make sure that we weren't pagan and had lots of gods. So you get this massive editing process where we're going to take, we might have had more than one god, uh, El, Elohim, those. We're going to scope it down until we just have one god. And we're going to eliminate everything else away from this that says that there was more than one god. But the pagans have lots of gods. We're going to be monotheistic. We're going to have one god. Our God is one God, and we're going to eliminate in our compiling of records anything that might suggest there's more than one God. So this editing process means we're going to start leaving some of these, some of these things out. Uh, what got left out? Well, of course we know. As we start, as we're looking at parts of the Old Testament, and we're going to have the advantage of the pearl of great price, we know for sure that there were whole ministries of Melchizedek left out. And greater information about Abraham and what he knew and what he saw and what he did in Egypt and all that kind of stuff. We know for sure that uh, what part of what was left out was the was Enoch's story and his city and, and the things that he did and, and that those didn't make the cut because it didn't match the culture that they were trying to develop post-exile uh, of, of Jews in Israel at that time. How about Joseph? Remember, you've been reading the Book of Mormon. Captain Moroni, in the midst of trying to somehow circle the troops, what does he do? <laughs> he's quoting from the Old Testament. Specifically, he's quoting the words of Joseph and of his father, uh, Israel. They had access to those. Those didn't make the cut into the Septuagint. Those got left out. So sometimes we're looking at this incomplete record, and that's why, as we're trying to find Christ in the Old Testament, we need the help of restoration eyes helping us look through the Old Testament to find the Christ that we worship and his attributes and his characteristics. Now, there were, we also know that there were major edits under Hezekiah and Josiah uh, anywhere from 50 to 100 years before Lehi. They were also lopping off and leaving things out uh, and things that really needed uh, to be said. Now, and again, archaeology is finding major evidences of all these shrines of Asherah, uh, a female deity, um, the queen of heaven, Jeremiah calls her, uh, that were also there, and, and that the Jews were and the Israelites were worshiping on a regular basis. That didn't make the cut. So, what are some of the keys then to finding Christ in the Old Testament? We must, we must, we must, we must read it with the aid of inspired commentators. It would be nice to have an inspired commentator to tell you exactly where and how and why to find Christ. Well, as it turns out, we have inspired commentators. And we have Jesus himself. When Jesus is going to start proclaiming his ministry, what does he do? He stands up in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4. And starts quoting the Old Testament. 
I am here to open the eyes of the blind and set and set the captivities free, you know, and he's quoting Old Testament. He's he's going to take those scriptures and say, "Let me tell you what they really mean." Paul, again, Paul's entire ministry and everything that he preached in every synagogue he landed in was based in the Old Testament. And and so the books of Hebrews and, and uh, Romans and Corinthians, they're all Paul expounding on the Old Testament and helping us find Christ there. Okay? Now, Joseph Smith and modern prophets. We have uh, the Joseph Smith translation where he's clarifying and he's expanding things like the book of Moses and the stories of Moses and the book of Abraham. When we're getting revelation after revelation. Uh, sometimes Joseph thought those were translations. Turns out they're more just flat-out revelation about what was going on in their life. And we have those, the, their inspired commentaries. Interestingly enough, we have Mormon and Moroni, and they are also quoting Old Testament scriptures. And they're going to give us uh, more information about that. Okay? But you know what? So's Nephi. So's Lehi. So's Jacob. Abinadi is quoting Isaiah. They're going to say, here's what, here's what he was really meaning. Here's what it's about. Okay? And we, we, to that, we also now have uh, current inspired translators and scholars, uh, work of people like in the Maxwell Institute at BYU, doing a fantastic job of taking the current knowledge and understanding and being able to combine that with knowledge and understanding and revelations from the prophet to help us now know more than we ever have before about where to find Christ uh, in the Old Testament. Okay. So, uh, in kind of kind of starting to wrap this up, I, I would like to, um, as we start getting ready to talk about uh, Adam and Eve and the fall next week, um, I want us to t the, the kind of the one takeaway, if you will, uh, from taking a look at this. Uh, if we don't get caught up in the signpost and we see what the fine the signposts were pointing at in the Old Testament. Here's what we find, and that is that as we look at the Old Testament, if we pull back and do the 10,000-foot view, kind of the drone view, sometimes I call it, of the Old Testament, and rather than getting caught up in some of these things if we're not sure if they're symbolic or not, and again, we'll sort through, try and sort through some of that. Look at the, there's a loud, powerful message that we should see jumping out of the entire Old Testament as we look at it from a distance. And it's this. That salvation is not an individual event. We are exalted in relationships. We're exalted in relationships. There's no such thing as a Zion person. Just Zion people. And, and the entire story of uh, the Old Testament is a record of God's dealings with a covenant people. Watch what he does. Watch how he does it. Watch how he loves them. Watch how he suffers through some of their foibles. 
how he tries to bring them home, how he helps them repent, how he calls them to repentance, how he loves them in spite of themselves, and how he tries to call them home and give them inspired teachers. And even when they're throwing those inspired teachers out, those prophets, he's finding a way ultimately to give them every possibility to bring them home. This is God dealing with covenant people. And brothers and sisters, this ought to relate to us. If, if this is how God works with and, and helps and inspires and leads along covenant people then, this is how he will work with us also as covenant people. He loves us and will work with us. Brothers and sisters, I bear you my testimony that the Old Testament is inspired, that Jesus is in every book, that if we don't get caught up too much in the signpost, <coughs> we will understand more clearly that Jesus, the Jehovah that we find there, to be the one that will bring us as a covenant people home. What a wonderful class this is going to be as we, as we work to find him in these pages. Now, so finally then, your, your responsibility, your job this week, go back and read stories about Adam and Eve. Go back and read Moses and Abraham and even Genesis. And let's have a really good conversation next week about what exactly happened in the Garden of Eden. And why it is that we love Eve so much. <laughs> I bear you my testimony that this is true. And I leave this with you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>